All right, everybody, welcome to the January 12th edition of Cascadian Views. We've got me and Dan here today for a, a fairly lonely episode. Yep, just us here. Um, I, I guess we'll we'll flip it around and start with uh, the local news first, since there's uh, a bit of some breaking stuff going on. Uh, you are losing your state senator, as we were just discussing before we went on the air. Yeah, yeah, it's late breaking. Actually, in the last 15 minutes, this has come out. Uh, like right away is when the story broke. Uh, but yeah, State Senator Kevin Ranker, who uh, represents uh, Senate District uh, 40, yeah, the 40th, and uh, which covers uh, San Juan Islands, uh, chunks of Skagit County, and then a big piece of Whatcom County as well is stepping down and it's uh we are in the era of me too so it is a uh sexual misconduct scandal uh the allegations are that a uh, woman with whom he'd had a relationship for a certain period of time after they broke it off uh he continued to be in contact with her and uh, harass her in a number of ways i think there might have been some quid pro quo offerings as a part of uh what was alleged here so just in general, not good conduct, uh, you know, just you know, not great. From what I'm reading in the article, and that is my sole source of information on this, you might know more than me, but he, uh, it was a woman he had had a relationship before he got to the legislature. He then hired her as um, a staff member in the legislature, made That's it right. very clear that um, sexual favors were expected for that. She rebuffed him, and he made it well miserable for her basically yeah yeah so just really really not good conduct that's alleged here and uh, not something that we should expect of someone frankly holding any public office but especially something of the level of a state senator and it's so. it's not like this is uh, the existence of these allegations are late breaking I guess this has been percolating for like six months now, according to the article. Yeah, I think the, uh, well, the investigation has been going. It went public, I believe about two weeks ago was when the big news was actually starting to drop that this was going on. But I guess it had been investigated. I, I'm not sure what the status of that was prior to that. But you know, I first started seeing the news stories come out uh, right around the new year. So it's been it's been coming kind of steady and slowly. And uh, then I guess it was going to be referred to Senate ethics. Uh, he stepped down from some of the committees he was going to be chairing. And then today, I guess his position was completely untenable. And so he's resigning altogether. The um, the article you linked mentions that the uh, legislature hired a law firm to investigate the allegations back in mm -hmm. October. October. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that really gets me at, uh, for this is that this is conduct that dates back to 2010, that legislative session. It took that long mm -hmm. to hold him accountable. That's a terrible sign when you get nearly a decade yeah. before any consequences come your way. Well, I'm, I'm assuming that it was probably reported only this year. I mean, it's the sort, or well, I don't know. You know, it's the sort of thing where 
you know, the national attention really wasn't on these kinds of scandals so much in, you know, 2010. And we are in a different and hopefully more scrutinizing time over this sort of behavior. And so now these allegations, you know, things come back and are taken more seriously. You know, I, I have faith that that's the case, but we've had a bit of a local story going on around here. The wife of uh, a big coffee shop owner here in town uh, has been mm-hmm. outed as like the person behind these me neither hashtag me neither um, oh. YouTube videos, just trashing the the Me Too movement and whatnot. And when you think about that, somebody who has a company with a fairly liberal reputation, fairly liberal town like Portland behind that it, it makes me think that uh that maybe one side doesn't view these allegations quite so seriously the other yeah there's always kind of a waiting backlash yeah um the other thing that i want to talk about in the the local news section is um uh kind of a bevy of policy ideas by west coast governors in in their first few days well first few days for newsom Inslee mm-hmm. and brown are returning to the job um but in washington and california there have both been proposals for uh single payer healthcare systems uh or at least public option in washington california is trying to get permission to go for a, a full single payer system or at least a pilot program to explore the possibility right right that, that was that's going to be a critical step of any kind of state level single single payer system is it has to actually get approval from the federal government to opt out of their existing Medicare program and also divert the, the tax uh, dollars that will go to that. The Affordable Care Act uh, in a, a new wrinkle, they have to get a waiver um, to go with uh, the full single payer system as a way of providing insurance. Um, and in a, a Republican White House simply withholding that waiver is probably uh, not that hard for them to do. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, or if you're more cynical on about how a state-level single-payer plan might work out, they might just go ahead and approve it and starve it. I don't know. Well, I mean, if there's one state that has economic base to support it, it's probably California. True, true. I mean, yeah, that's... On their own, they're the sixth largest economy on Earth. There are plenty of economies you know, smaller than they are that manage to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, there's definitely uh, things like that percolating out there. Uh, let's see here. I'm trying to think of some of the other big initiatives that are coming along. Wasn't uh, parental leave down in California? Yeah. Um, so it's it's a big step for America, but it's not really that big of a step compared to other economic um, economically advanced countries, uh, like say the European Union, not so. Don't get too, too excited, but it, uh, it's going to provide six months of parental leave to the couple of a newborn, and they can split that up between the two of them kind of however they want. They can right. take three months each. The mother can take all six. The mother can take two, and the father take four, however they want to do it. But it would uh, give new parents six months total uh, parental leave, and it would be paid. It, w- it would be yeah. mandatory paid leave, which is something that states are, are fairly reluctant to do. They're 
they're much more willing to allow you to take time off and return to your job. They're mm-hmm. less likely to require companies to pay you while you're gone. So it it is a big step. I'm yeah. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, well, uh, Washington, we're actually we're ahead of the game there. We've it's not as generous. Uh, I guess the what we've got we've got uh, what's been passed in 2017 uh, is a paid family leave program that awards uh, 12 weeks of leave per individual. So actually, and it's for any other medical purpose as well. So, and that will, they're actually going to start deducting uh, the premiums for that uh, this year in 2019. And anyone who's been paying the premiums in 2019 will be able to take advantage of that in 2020. That's fantastic. Yeah, kind of a you know a stealth move on uh, you know our legislature's part. They uh, got that done a couple of years ago, but yeah, the California one will be even more expansive, and uh, hopefully, uh, this uh, left coast we've got here will be the uh, inspiration for the rest of the country to make some moves that way. The um, the one area that Oregon is uh, making its own moves here is that we've got a. Uh, some new gun legislation that Kate Brown has uh, kind of thrown her weight behind. Senate Bill 501, which would require uh, gun owners to obtain permits, also require uh, permits and background checks when obtaining or exchanging ammunition, um, to really just strengthen it up, um, up the fines. Anyone who possessed a firearm without getting the state permit would face fines up to $6,250. and. Uh, up to one day less than a year in jail, um, and the uh, it's probably the splashiest. Although our legislature has eleven new gun bills sitting on its desk, this is something that Oregon has uh, well, really surprisingly led the pack on. When you consider how rural uh, Oregon is and how much of the state is deeply conservative, especially out of yeah. Years, um, the fact that these sorts of things are, are really just sailing through the legislature is uh, very encouraging news. Yeah, I'll say. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't really think of Oregon as being the place where you'd expect to be kind of the tip of the spear on gun legislation, but you're certainly ahead of Washington there and taking a lot of these, uh, you, know, you know, certainly making plans to take these laws more seriously and uh, put some teeth into them, which has been the hardest part so far. And a lot of that really comes down to to Kate Brown. She has made this a a deep part of of her legislative agenda um, since she became governor. One of the things that she really hit the ground running on, I was involved with some Everytown efforts in the state that she Mm -hmm. really backed 100% and and lent her her star power such as it was to. Mm -hmm. So uh, I I really just want to thank her uh, for making this a priority because it works. We've We've done it. Fantastic. I mean, you think, I don't know, I mean, she had kind of a tougher re-election fight than was anticipated. Do you think that might have been a factor? It or? did not actually turn out to be that tough. Well, yeah, she eventually, you know, you know yeah. walled it. But, uh, yeah. It looked like it was going to be tough, and I think a lot of that came down to money. Uh, mm-hmm. for, for the first time in a while, Phil Knight decided to throw his cash around. Yeah. Uh, who's huge in Oregon. He's kind of like our version of Jeff Bezos. You mm-hmm. guys have, have, have Bezos, we have Knight, um, and he just sunk, I, I think, over $10 million into the Republican side of the campaign this year. Just Wow. Yeah, it, it was wild. Um, 
And now he's back trying to get favors from Kate Brown, and they're making buddy buddy like nothing happened. So, of course, when you're a billionaire, everything's forgiven. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, wasn't there? Uh, oh yeah, Inslee also released a budget proposal, which has something I want to talk about in it. Um, it was, and now I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but it was a a fairly substantial amount of cash. Um, for trying to to regenerate Chinook salmon stocks in Puget Sound. Hmm. Um, Just a moment. Yeah. Uh, targeted solutions to save Northwest uh, orcas. The uh, I had a discussion with my girlfriend about this last night because there's there's a little bit of cross purposes here. We live in a region of the country that is largely powered by renewable energy. Um, and that's a luxury a lot of places don't have. And a substantial source of that renewable energy is um, the dam system. Exactly. Which mm-hmm. is, is causing massive problems for the uh, Chinook salmon. Um, and one of the, the most visible consequences of this is the, the resident orca population in Puget Sound. Um, these orcas are a little bit different uh, for a lot of reasons. For one, they don't migrate. Orcas generally migrate around. These are, are resident. They don't leave Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also got specially adapted mouthparts for feeding on salmon. It is their sole prey is salmon. They do not hunt other marine mammals like other orcas might. They don't eat other types of fish. They eat salmon. And they have begun to evolve specific things that make them better at this and worse at, at other things. And so these two things are kind of at crossheads here. Um, this renewable power source that we have is causing problems in the ecosystem, um, and it, it's getting to untenable level, uh, levels. And one of the things that I think might go a long way towards solving this is operating hatcheries in, in Puget mm-hmm. Sound. Uh, salmon are, unlike other species of fish, actually pretty good at this because they come back to the same place they were born. So you can kind of help the breeding process along and make sure that they have the most babies they can and that everything works out like that. And I I really like the idea that Inslee is throwing real money at uh, at helping this. Yeah, $1.1 billion Inslee is proposing in the budget uh, for the, the Puget Sound orca population and for the damage we're going to make. Yeah, yeah. I was just looking here, and of all the things that are listed here, I think the one that's probably definitely going to be the most controversial, probably definitely, most definitely going to be the controversial, yeah, is that three-quarter of a million to look at, uh, yeah, breaching the dams to uh, increase the uh, increase the Chinook force of resident orcas, like you described. So, yeah, but... It's, oh man, one issue with, you, know, you try and solve one thing with the environment and then it creates one other issue. It's a lot to balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just a hard circle to square. Um, yeah. And, and different priorities are at loggerheads here because without that hydropower, It'll probably be replaced with, you know, natural gas power plants, things like that, which are much more ecologically damaging. Um, right. 
And in, in the short term, you know, a pod of, I think it's 75 orcas are in the Puget Sound population of non-migratory orcas so is a, a fairly small number compared to the, the total amount out there, but it's also just so symbolic of the city of Seattle. Mm. Well, it's also, I mean, there's all kinds of you know, repercussions and consequences of when a species, you know, reaches some tipping point and is no longer a part of the ecosystem. You know, when salmon aren't there to feed the orcas, to, you know, feed on some other species, you know, the, the consequences just end up dominoing and go far beyond anything we can think of. So, yeah, absolutely. Keeping the species is a priority, I mean, not just for the orcas, but for whatever 10 steps down the chain. Yeah. And so, kind of yeah. one of the more ironic things is if these orcas fed like normal orcas, they would actually solve a different problem for us. Um, one of the mm. one of the large factors in the salmon decline is not only the dams, but the the amount of sea lion population around urban areas, including Seattle. Um, San Francisco also has this really bad, where they they kind of feed on detritus and stuff thrown from tourists, and their population numbers explode. They overfish the salmon. Orcas naturally hunt sea lions, or normal orcas do. Not the ones in Puget Sound. They only eat fish, but, you know, if they got back on a, a more normal evolutionary track, this would actually fix a couple problems. I don't think we'll get there. 75, yeah. 75 individuals left in population is a, kind of a low point to try and start something new from. But Yeah, sure. All right. Well, that'll wrap up the... Uh, the local section will get into uh, national news. Uh, I guess we'll start with the uh, the big bombshell from the New York Times and then a related bombshell from the Washington Post. Um, according to the New York Times, Trump has been uh, under an official counterintelligence uh, investigation. The FBI had the evidence that they thought he was a Russian asset and was actively harming the security of the United States and opened an investigation. Um, they also have been monitoring real-time communications. And importantly, this is something that Obama set up with a uh, executive order as one of his last acts in office. He reorganized how the intelligence services um, exchanged information with law enforcement. Um, it was described in an excellent Twitter th uh, thread that's in the Facebook group that Chris posted as mm -hmm. uh, giving FBI access to the raw firehose of information uh, and not letting it filter through, you know, NSA managers or whatnot before they got it. Um, and it's it's terrifying Trump. He went on like a 20-tweet tirade today on all his favorite topics. Wow. Well, that's, that's a normal weekend. Yeah. Oh. Yikes. It's kind of weird when we get into these discussions to step back and think again, oh, that's right. You know, the, the target of all of this is, you know, the president of the United States. The national security threat is the president of the United States, which is it's through the looking glass. You know, I, it seems cliche, but we have to keep stepping back and think about this, that this is where we are. The other bit of news on the Russian investigation came from the Washington Post, which uh, reported today 
that uh, President Trump is scrubbing records and not allowing people uh, access to information about what he said to President Putin. He is actively keeping any government representatives away, saying that they'll hurt his rapport with Putin, and then he, con he personally confiscates translator's notes after the meeting. Yeah. Um, all of this seems pretty strikingly in violation of uh, laws that we have on keeping open records of public business. Yeah. Mm. You know, but her emails again. You know, this was this was if you uh, look at what the press covered, the central issue of the 2016 election. And yet and yet here we are. Let's let's talk about press in the 2016 election because uh, the New York Times ran a, a now infamous headline um, in looking at president's ties to Russia. FBI comes up empty, something along those lines. FBI finds nothing. Uh, we mm -hmm. now know at the time the New York Times wrote that headline, the FBI had a counterintelligence investigation targeting uh, the president-elect. Yeah. At that point in time. So where did the information for that headline come from? I'm, it, do we want to say it's you know New York field office Giuliani people? I, I mean, I, I don't actually expect an answer to that question. That was more yeah. rhetorical, but where where the hell did they pull that from? Yeah. I mean, that, that information was 180 degrees from the truth. Yeah. Uh, that would be that would be my first venture. New York field, NYC field office, Giuliani people. Now, um, it's it's riddled with uh, with these nuts. One of the the lawfare uh, blog authors, Ben Wittes, I believe his name mm -hmm. is, um, has been commenting that he's pretty sure that the guy's source for all the stories is written on this is Ben McGann. Um, and he, he points to a couple things. For one, that would mean McGahn began cooperating with Mueller um, well before what's been reported now. And second of all, it ties up some loose ends. Like the FBI got a copy of a letter that Trump had drafted but ultimately decided not to send, laying out his reasons for firing Comey and including the Russia matter on it. Um, that was delivered to investigate. How it got from a discarded draft in the Oval Office to investigators in the FBI? Um, that's, that's a really good question, and mm -hmm. it's a pretty clear answer if the source for all this and the inside man was McGahn. Yeah, it makes a lot of pieces fall into place. Um, which makes me feel kind of bad about a lot of jokes I made about the you know fate of the Western civilization resting in Don McGahn's ethical lines. Uh, turns out maybe he actually had our back a little bit. In some ways, <laughs> yeah. he was also he was also the Sherpa to put Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. That's, so that's true. <laughs> his moral compass can still use some calibrating, even if this comes out to be true. This really feels like kind of a watershed moment, and it, it comes. In, in what I describe as kind of a crescendo for the whole investigation, um, there's been reporting that Rosenstein is going to be leaving soon. That reporting has not been refuted, but there has been subsequent reporting that Rosenstein plans to leave after Mueller delivers his report. Um, those two things can both be true if Mueller is planning on 
delivering his report within the next couple months, which there has been some other reporting that indicates that that is in fact what's looking likely to happen. Well, hadn't he requested like uh, an extension through May, or I thought there was some court filing along those lines. He extended the grand jury for six months. Right. It was also basically a boilerplate extension. Um, yeah. So he may not need all those six months. Uh, now, the, the other thing that gets kind of interesting in all this is uh, if you, and bear with me, I know this might be a little bit of a jump, if you presume that Mueller has something, knowing that he had access to real-time intelligence information, real-time signals intelligence, um, real-time human intelligence, uh, he, he never interviewed Kushner. He, he never interviewed Ivanka. He never interviewed a lot of people who would seem central to this whole thing. And it, I know I'm getting into a little bit of conspiracy land, but it makes sense if you assume that any interview where you have to you know, confront people and reveal things that you know um, gives the game away uh, mm -hmm. a little bit on that. And if he's really really handling and it, it seems like it, it would be this is how it's set up now the fbi and by extension the special counsel the department of justice has um real-time first look access to all this intelligence information um you don't need those interviews if you've already got that you don't need to nail them down unless you're looking for a process crime um, which you know has value in and of itself but isn't necessarily needed if you already have the goods on say treason right well, and it, hmm. yeah, I, was, I kind of lost my train of thought as where I was going to go with that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if the process crime itself is being done in the purpose of the substantial crime is kind of where it starts coming around to again, like the, you know, one of the other revelations that came from this week. Yeah, and it was this week. Everything is happening so fast uh, with uh, Paul Manafort's lawyers and their crappy oh, copier. Yeah. That's right. That it was, you know, bilateral communication and it was happening late, you know, continuing through the end of the campaign. Kushner was trying to maintain a back channel and we knew this you know back at the start of the administration yeah he wanted to he wanted use to the russian embassy and their secure communication system right so if they were planning to commit obstruction as a way of assisting in the interference and continuing it along it i it, it can't really even be hand waved away it as a process crime anymore. It's actively. I, I just need, <laughs> it, it's a it's a crime of substance. If you don't need to interview the person to ascertain the truth, mm -hmm. then you don't need to interview them. If you're just doing the interview solely to see if they lied to you, why even bother? You already know everything. If you don't need to fill in any blanks, if you don't need to roll anybody. Yeah. If you you know why why interview the mafia don if you've got the six phone calls where he orders a murder on tape. Right. Yeah, I mean you don't I think you're absolutely right. You don't call in John Gotti and ask him did you order the hit? No, you've got the testimony of two or three goons that you flipped who say he did it. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. The um 
the Manafort story. I, I forgot that was this week. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, let's start this conversation off by telling people how PDFs work. There, there's, there's a reason that a PDF looks the same wherever you look on it. You are constructing something. It is not, you know, like a picture where everything is, is flat. It has layers, much like a Photoshop document. You cannot just paste a black bar with the, the fill tool that makes a black rectangle and have it delete all the information below it. That's not how a PDF right. works. It has your text underneath that black box and it just shows a black box on top of it. Uh, Paul Manafort's lawyer did not realize this about PDFs, <laughs> which is something, by the way, that some Republicans, and I believe the Bush White House, also forgot. Um, so this is not even a new whoopsie. This is featured in American political scandals before. I would think people would learn this, but Paul Manafort's lawyer filed a court document that he attempted to redact by drawing black boxes over text he didn't want people to see. Uh, the problem was you could highlight all that text underneath the black boxes, copy it, and paste it to wherever you wanted, and it would show up clear as day because that text was still there. Um, and we learned from this that he was um, offering access to Trump's campaign to various Ukrainian and Russian officials. He was sharing internal polling data with those people, which could explain how Russia was targeting their uh, you know, ad buys on Facebook and whatnot. Although, truth be told, I don't really think target Republicans in Wisconsin is really all that you know, hard to yeah. figure out. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's only limited value there. But uh, yeah, that's that's the president's campaign manager with confirmed collusion links, which you know seemed to get brushed over awfully quickly. I, I don't think I've yeah. read about this more than two days after it happened. Speaking of fire hose, I mean that's that's what we're living in now. It's every single day. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, Paul Manafort uh, getting owned again by uh, Boomerhood, basically. Yeah, but not understanding how technology <laughs> works, which seems to be something he is uh, perpetually having problems with. Yeah, all you know, all the way through, they had his texts, they had everything. Mm. Um, all this is happening in the midst of the shutdown that has now become the longest ever in U.S. history. It passed that mark today. Mm -hmm. um, the previous record was 21 days with the uh, Clinton-Gingrich showdown in the 90s. Um, we're well beyond that, uh, you know, in all likelihood. There doesn't seem to be anything coming. Uh, the president is all too happy to let it go on for months. He's telling people he can declare an emergency, and I don't think realizing that the more he says that, the less likely it is to be true. When you make yeah. a public deliberation for weeks about this, it really kind of shreds the argument that it's any sort of emergency. Or on the flip side, he kind of goes back and forth on whether or not the wildfires in California are emergency. So, Oh, yeah. And he's threatening <laughs> to take away recovery money from California and uh, hurricane recovery money from Florida or to pay for it. Picking a fight with Marco Rubio, probably just to pick a fight with Marco Rubio. Yeah, I, that's the only reason I can see for including Florida in there, where you have a Republican newly elected senator, a Republican newly elected governor, and you want everybody down there to be happy and elect more Republicans, seeing how good it went this time for them. And yeah, in in theory, vote for him in two thousand twenty, which 
Well, that gets tougher, but oh god. Yeah, it's he's just the worst, the absolute worst. You know, take money that's actually being used to help people and use it for racist symbolism. Yeah. Um appalling. The the Coast Guard sent out flyers to families this week talking about things that they can do since they're about to miss their first paycheck. They found some uh, questionably legal means to pay the Coast Guard for the first paycheck after the shutdown began. Um, I don't think anybody's looking into it too closely, uh, probably just because nobody cares, but the uh, the Commandant sent around uh, a letter saying that he had found legal authority to make one last paycheck uh, and then just paid everybody. Now they're actually missing paychecks. They're telling people that they should babysit, turn their hobbies into a second career with sites like Etsy. Which is actually not that bad of an idea for most people, but um, not really the advice you want to be giving to people you're making work and then not paying. Yeah, not not how to make your rent. You yeah, know? exactly. Uh, babysitting was one of the recommendations. Uh, it, it's just ridiculous. Government agencies have a tendency of putting out completely tone-deaf memos just like that. The Coast Guard is not the first department in the U.S. government to get in trouble. This shutdown over this issue. Mm-hmm. I, I do not understand why they let it happen every single time. Yeah. I mean, at least they didn't include donate blood on there this time. <laughs> uh, what I heard, which uh, was just awful, I think it was the IRS and IRS uh, HR was telling employees uh, to offer to barter uh, housekeeping and painting and carpentry and other services to landlords in order to make their rent yeah it's ridiculous absolutely insane uh trump is publicly talking about months or even years on the shutdown um there was a wonderful quote in a new york times uh, article who profiled a trump voter from i believe it was florida which is basically a, a genre of new york times article in and of itself they love to find trump voters to profile that uh, and she said, it wasn't supposed to be like this. He's not hurting the people he's supposed to be hurting. Which I yep. think really just gives the game away. I think that's such a descriptive quote for their mindset. He was the guy who was supposed to make black people feel bad. Make all the brown people suffer. Yeah, exactly. It's face-eating leopard party, really. You know, that's... That's the gag. He's 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 hurting people who aren't the ones he's supposed to be hurting. So, <sighs> ugh, ugh. On the America. other hand, he is running the government like he ran his businesses, not paying right. employees, shutting them down, running out of money. <laughs> yeah, I, gosh, you know, it's been two years. You know, a lot of the worst, the absolute worst hasn't happened. And, you know, a lot of it has just been kind of psychic headspace invasion. And then, of course, you know, the terrible, you know, putting kids in camps and all, you know, all, all that other awfulness as well. But a lot of the fears haven't come true. But who knows if it really, you know, if this is the point where it really starts to fall apart. Yeah that uh, he doesn't have the advisors he had early on, you know, the legacy Republican types. Now it's all the sycophants and crazy people and everyone who's morally bankrupt enough to work for him. Uh, he, maybe he's not wrong that this uh, shutdown could go yeah. for months, 
for years. He's really backed into a corner on this, and he has nobody speaking for the institutions in the government. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that would incentivize either the Republicans or him to back down and end this is if they were feeling some kind of political pain over it. And he's so disconnected from reality that he just doesn't care. Do you think there's going to come a point where they're willing to cut him loose in order to try and save the 2020 presidential election? I don't know if that would help them even at that point. If he's damaged the brand, if he's damaged things so much, how, how do they even create a separate identity from him and run like Pence or Romney or someone like that instead? So I, I actually, I read a, a very interesting take from um, from a Republican who was trying to argue that they uh, they should get away from Trump. And one of the things that they used was the Clinton impeachment and that they, they pulled out a piece that they had written back in like 2003 or something, that if the Democrats had pulled the plug on Clinton and given Gore, you know, two or three years of incumbency, he wins the 2000 election, he wins the 2004 election. Uh, it, it, it fell into place nicely because, of course, it's a constructed narrative. But I think that there is a, a possibility there that that actually, you know, could have come to pass um, if we had seen the light a little bit early on that, if Me Too had come about, you know, 15 years before. But, yeah. uh, you know, if they have, I don't want to say if they have any chance they can cut them loose. You know, going into 2020 with President Pence, I, I do think electorally speaking, is a better deal for them, but I'm a little biased in that. I'm going to yeah. apologize for that, um, and I didn't think Trump had a chance last time, so who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. But um, things do seem pretty dire coming up. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's that whole... I mean, it, it, the media is not entirely wrong that they, you know, keep an eye on how he's doing among Republicans and he's still overwhelmingly overwhelmingly popular among Republican voters. I mean, they kind of miss the forest for the trees though, and that there's another, you know, 65% of the population that they're basically writing off. But I mean, these are people that Republicans don't win elections for that one. But then there's also another 15 to 20% of voters that they have to at least convince to vote for them some of the time. So, geez, yeah, I I don't know if uh, they're actually going to be receptive enough. I mean, I think the House, probably not. But senators, you'd think uh, this would be a problem for Marco Rubio, for Joni Ernst, for... Uh, Tim Scott starting to get vocal about racism. Tim Scott, Lindsey Graham, Tom Tillis, uh, Cory Gardner, all these guys. Yeah, Tim Scott they, wrote an op-ed in uh, the Washington Post attacking... Mm -hmm. um, Representative, uh, what's his name, from Iowa. Right, uh, Steve King. Yeah, o over right. the racism, talking about how if Republicans you know, want to stop getting called racist, they should speak up when they're a racist in their mix. And I think it's a very small step from there to the president's a fucking racist. Yeah. So. Uh, Martha McSally, I was thinking, just uh, she just lost an election in Arizona, but she's going to have to face the voters in you know two years' time. Yeah. I would think she'd want to keep an eye on how she's perceived and how she might be able to do better with uh, this electorate next time around. 
Um, speaking of 2020, we have a couple new declared. Let's go with Democrats. Yeah, at least one of them is uh, <laughs> Julian Castro uh, from Texas, a former member of the Obama cabinet, if I recall correctly. Yeah, uh, a very young, dynamic uh, Latino leader is launched his campaign in San Antonio, Texas today in the same square that President Obama uh, used on his visit through San Antonio. Um, it was a little bit confusing, I, I think, watching the announcement. Um, mm -hmm. His campaign manager is his brother. Right. They look incredibly similar. Um, well, yeah, they're they're uh, they're twins. They're, they're twins, yeah. They're right. they identical twins, and they don't dress in any way that makes it easy to distinguish them. I I was actually constantly confused by who was actually talking. Yeah, I, I saw the video, and I think I, I think Julian had stripes on his tie, and that was about <laughs> it. <laughs> that that might be the difference. The, the same dark suit between yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So the, the, I mean that that that's some fun opportunities there. Oh I mean, yes. Yeah. I can't say I know that much about Julian Castro beyond that, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, interested to see what he's got to say. They're, he's they're definitely actually, on the younger side. Yeah, um, there's actually speculation on election Twitter that he's mostly using this as a visibility bump to springboard to a governor's game mm, okay. uh, in, in 2022. Is, um, kind of kind of understandable but on the same token um the democratic governors association is not supposed to be kind of using the uh presidential election to to build campaign infrastructure right yeah so well also he was on the vp shortlist in 2016 yeah. uh so he might also be angling for consideration on that front again this time as well uh I saw Chris was kind of speculating in the Facebook group that maybe he's uh, fishing to be VP for uh, Harris or something like that, which would be a wonderful I, place for him. Or could be quite a ticket, yeah. Presidency would be a wonderful place for him, too. I, I have nothing but positive thoughts about, about Julian. Um, mm -hmm. the, the other announcement was Tulsi Gabbard out of Hawaii. Yikes, who, yeah. Who is a basket of contradictions. Um, She's very much pro-Assad, and I don't just mean anti-war in Syria. I mean literally pro-Assad. Yeah. <laughs> um, she has very virulent opinions about gay people that she hasn't completely denounced. Um, and I, that goes just beyond opposing gay marriage. It goes, no. Yeah, Usually actually. Condemning everything that they stand for and like, railing about the homosexual agenda. It's bathroom-built paranoia all the way, yeah. Yeah. Um, she somehow managed to parlay a, a series of almost alt-right political opinions, uh, but an endorsement of Bernie Sanders into being a hero of, of some on the fringe left, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and she's also just picked a fight with her senator from her state. Yep. Um, she is managed to uh managed to get herself described in the media as a hindu nationalist <laughs> which which is an odd position for somebody in america to be um yeah and she 
she really stoked uh, a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, um, or accused others of stuff mm-hmm. and such. Right, that was her beef with Hirono. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, when really, I, I don't think Hirono stepped over any edges there. She wasn't. She didn't, you know, ask, "Are you going to honor the American Constitution or the Pope or anything like that?" Um, she pointed out a, a couple of connections to a, a fraternal organization with religious connotations, the Knights of Columbus, I believe. Right. Um, which, you know, advocates against various, you know, what are generally considered positive social values in America these days. Um, they're, 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 they've got political, yeah, opinions, yeah. absolutely. They're you know, very strong anti-choice, very strong anti-gay, yeah, I mean, they yeah. I think they're fair game. Exactly. And she wasn't attacking the religious character, just the the religious political opinion that infused. Yeah. So it seemed an odd fight to to pick. Um and Maisie Hirono did not take it lying down. No. She's she's tough. She yeah. dishes it out too and good for her. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of jokes on Twitter that Gabbard is the first primary campaign against the president announced. <laughs> so. well which party that's that's my joke you know we, uh yeah I, I don't know she might actually be going for the jill stein uh lane more than anything else you know dip her toes in the democratic primary and then uh take the green party offer of the nomination you know at somewhere early in 2020 I do not have a very high opinion of Tulsi Gabbard, uh, and I think she would absolutely take it. You know, I, it, it, a presidential run just does not make a lot of sense you know, if you're seeing her as a person of the left. Uh, I mean, because I think the assumption is still very likely that uh, Bernie's going to run. If she were advocating or trying to push left-wing policy, uh, you'd yeah, you know, considering how close she's been with Bernie for the last uh, two, three years, uh, you'd think she'd be working more in concert with what he's doing. And I, I think the, the most likely, if she stays in the primary, is she's going to be taking votes out of his hide, you know, from some of his fringier elements of support, which, frankly, are a lot of what he's held on to at this point. So, yeah, I really don't know what she's doing besides, well, I, I could make even more sinister speculations that, you know, she's doing this as some kind of, you know, Putinist plant. Because I'm willing to believe it with her. She's something else. She altogether. has a very eclectic uh, kind of group of beliefs here. Um, there's a lot of things that really read like standard Republican fare in a lot of yeah. ways. She, she endorses torture. Right. In interrogating terrorism subs, uh, suspects, just c- completely off the, the, the charts in, in certain things. She, uh, mm-hmm. And then she turns around and she has a 100% rating from Planned Parenthood. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, you know, she's still got to get elected in Hawaii. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, you know, it's not, it, it's the slightly more, uh, slightly less liberal district of the two in Hawaii. It's basically everything but Honolulu. Uh, but, you know, it's still Hawaii, still fairly liberal. And so she's got to take a lot of those kind of positions. Um, but yeah, I mean, you balance that out with uh, a foreign policy that is very often just 
medieval, very Islamophobic, uh, very bellicose. Uh, she spent most of the second term, uh, Obama's second term, I mean, uh, attacking him over uh, not doing more in Syria, not, you know, doing more bombing, more activity. Now she's saying we need to pull out because I guess Assad's winning. Uh, she attacked the Iran deal. Uh, it's you know, some fairly frightening views. Uh, and yeah, and then at the same time, yeah, you get back to some domestic politics again, and she's uh, kind of attached herself to the burning wing on a lot of domestic policy. And uh, I, I haven't, I'm assuming that she's got some views like, you know, Medicare for all and things like that. She's willing to come out with, you know, some of the economic policies, but yeah, it's just not, I'm trying to think of where the constituency is going to be for all this. I'm frankly a little bit surprised she managed to win substantial office in Hawaii. She's kooky. Yeah. I mean, the state Senate or state house or whatever she was in before she became a a U.S. Mm -hmm. representative was was one thing. Those are fairly small districts, but to be a U.S. representative, you have to... You know, get the consent of a majority of, you know, roughly 450,000 people a district or something. And, you know, the Democratic Party in Hawaii, they do have some pretty fiercely competitive primaries. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't they don't mess around, and it is pretty much the only game in town. She did get challenged last time, but, uh, you know, blew the challenger completely out of the water. So, you know, she's not in any danger of being displaced, at least for now. Um you know, I think the scrutiny of a presidential, you know, run might <clears throat> might change that a little bit. You know, if uh, you know, kind of the extremeness of her views becomes more commonly known. But yeah, well, I guess extreme and eclectic again. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of the nice way to describe it. Just this weird grab bag. But uh, it's a primary, <laughs> and it's on. It, so. it is. So that brings up the declared candidates. Um, so Warren, Cascro, and Gabbard, correct? Is there anybody That's going on in there? Right. Uh, I think the speculation is that uh, Kamala Harris should be announcing sometime in the next week or two. Harris and Booker are all but declared. Yeah. NATO and, and, and Biden are basically right below that. Right. Right. And I think... Uh, I think there's at least, uh, I think the Bernie people are making some moves this week too. I don't know if he's going to be announcing. I think it'd probably be to his benefit to kind of hold off, but, uh, they're scared, th- they're scared of Beto. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I take that as kind of a tacit acknowledgement of them that their coalition last time was not necessarily Bernie's preferred coalition. Um, the the socialist left wing that he he wants to pull together is, is substantial, and I I don't yeah. want to diminish that. But he also had uh, a large contrarian young white people. I think would be a good way to put that in there. People sure. who weren't necessarily fully behind the the social programs and just wanted somebody to to stick it to the guys in charge or whatnot. And uh, they're noticing at least. The scuttlebutt from campaign members discussing things on Twitter is that they're noticing a, a large softness of their numbers that seems to be pulling towards Beto in particular as the new mm-hmm. thing that you know can stick it to the people in DC. Um, and Beto, huh? yeah, he's polling extremely well, extremely well. well among a large, diverse group of people. I am 
shocked. I, I don't think he yeah. should run. I, I don't think at all he should run, but he is consistently in like the top three. When you look yeah. At I mean, my, my assumption had been is, it, you know, Beto's support had been less about uh, any particular agenda, just new shiny. He's Basically, charismatic, yeah. he's handsome, he's, yeah, kind of the new thing, you know, a little bit like Obama, except we knew a little bit more about Obama by this point in the cycle back in 2008. Well, I don't even know if we knew a little bit more. Um, we have a pretty good record of Beto from his, his legislative sure has it's just a different beto than ran for texas which is where most people met beto for the first time I, I guess. yeah um huh. he he's incredibly rich um that's that's something that gets kind of overlooked a lot he's among the richest members of the house mm -hmm. um and he he had some fairly I, I want to put him in kind of the same vein as, as Newsom. Um, capitalism mm -hmm. towards progressive causes. Capitalism yeah. for, for good as, as a category, which is, I think, uh, one that fits both of them pretty well. And he kind of, he kind of lost some of that progressive shine when he ran for, for governor of, or senator from Texas. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested to see if he goes back to his roots. Uh, such as where you know what he is in the house as and what he was in el paso city council as opposed to what he mm. was when he ran for senate yeah i mean it's very very different electorate running for the democratic nomination than running for senator in texas yeah. so and you know i i brought up the rich thing i realized i never closed out that thought because he can largely self-fund really he's that rich he's pretty rich um let me let me look up his net worth in the tens of millions wow huh. yeah but yeah i mean i think self-funders i think like bloomberg and oh yeah he wouldn't be able to sink bloomberg level of money yeah he's, he's well under a billion i believe in fact i believe he's under a hundred million okay um and his his wife has apparently a, a large uh is an heir to a large fortune but she doesn't yeah so i say john Kerry didn't self-fund and he was yeah a billionaire so huh Okay. Uh, the last time that they pegged his net worth down uh, directly was 2013, and he was worth $8 million at that point. Okay. And it's, it's gone up since then. Well, yeah, I imagine he writes a book or something like that. It's going to <laughs> increase exponentially beyond that as well. I mean, that was, uh, I think... Before Obama was elected president, that was pretty much where his wealth came from, was writing his book. Yeah, but so. he, uh, he definitely has the cash to at least, you know, begin to build his war chest himself. He doesn't sure. rely on money coming in. Although, he also showed himself to be a tenacious fundraiser with no problem yeah. bringing money in. So, Yeah, that's what definitely caught my attention as, you know, potential. That's why I put him on my... Uh, on my team, the guy can raise Obama money. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I, I think that does it for us this week. Uh, I think we got talk it. about what you're going to be following this week. Oh, uh, what am I following this week? Uh, well, the Washington State Legislature is uh, convening on Monday. Uh, 
So I'm actually not going to be around for next week's podcast because I'm going to be uh, in Olympia for a lobby uh, weekend for the MLK weekend. But uh, there's a lot of things at stake uh, this time around. Uh, Inslee's budget, we talked a little bit about the top of the podcast, uh, also includes additional funding for education. Uh, there's still, I think, I think they're going to be pushing for this time around to get a uh, capital gains tax implemented on the uh, top one and a half percent of earners. So we'll see what we can do. Our tax code is abysmal here in Washington state. So anything that can be done to make it a little bit more progressive would be fine by me. So that's what I'm doing this week. All right. Um, what I'm going to be following this week is the state, uh, state of our parks here in Oregon. The uh, Mount Hood especially has just been absolutely trashed with no staff there to, to clean it up and keep an eye on everybody. Uh, it's starting to get to the point where uh, it's becoming a little bit of a hazard. The uh, governor's husband actually went up to Mount Hood, spent a, a bevy of time, multiple hours, cleaning it up there, and then uh, sent the president a bill uh, for $28. <laughs> Which was him valuing his time at, I believe, $7 an hour. Wow. That's, that's not minimum wage. Uh, that might be trouble. Yo, hey. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. I did not even think about that. Yeah. Oh, oh he, he was not actually billing by the hour. He was uh, billing by the pound. Oh, what okay. It, sure. that, that was what it, it would... Like video uh, at the dump. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it cost him to dump it off at the dump after he, he hauled it all out. So yeah. There we go. He got around it on technicality. He was yep. being reimbursed for expenses. He donated his labor. Well, that's good. <laughs> all right. Well, have a good week, Dan. All right. You too, Brock. See you in a couple weeks. Bye. All right. Bye.